0: Hello! Welcome to Documents and Details, a webinar and podcast series that explores the core documents of American history. Today, we are joined by our host, John Moser of Ashland University, and panelists Eric Sands of Barry College and David Krugler of the University of Wisconsin-Platteville. In honor of the upcoming 2022 congressional elections, we've chosen to focus this episode on the evolution of party politics, and in particular, on the weakening of the party system. Join us as we dissect the 1912 platform of one of the most successful third parties in American history, the progressives.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser. I am professor of history Chair of the Department of History and Political Science, as well as Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government Program at Ashland University. And I'd like to welcome you all to another episode of Documents in Detail, Teaching American History's webinar series in which we bring together thoughtful scholars to have a conversation about historically significant documents. We encourage all of you joining us this evening to participate in that conversation by submitting questions via the Q&A box. Please stick to the Q&A box, not the chat box, so I don't have to go back and forth from place to place. We will get to as many of those questions as possible. Within the next week, you'll be receiving an email with links for further reading, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from tonight's program. The speeches, letters, and other writings that we're using for this year's webinars are all drawn from the various volumes of our core document series. They are also available at the Teaching American, Hist- at Teaching American History's uh, extensive document database located at tah.org. The subject of our program this evening comes from the volume on political parties. Here it is, edited by Eric Sands. The document we'll be talking about is the Progressive Party Platform of 1912, and to help discuss it are Eric Sands himself. Eric is Associate Professor of Political Science and Department Chair of Political Science and International Affairs at Berry College, as well as David Krugler, Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin at Platteville. Both of these gentlemen are members, are faculty members in American Ashland University's Master's program in American History and Government. But before we jump into this reading, I have a favor to ask: Would you please take a moment to answer the questions that are about to come up on your screen? Our staff at uh, at teaching American history is trying to get a sense of what type of professional development we should offer to our webinar participants. Your feedback will help us to determine how best to serve our audience of educators. So I'm gonna give you a minute or so to go through these and we will resume our program. All right. So, Eric, Dave, glad to have you with us tonight. Glad to
2: be
3: here. Thank you, John. Let's,
1: let's take a look at, uh, at, this, uh, at this document, which uh, if you have the book in front of you, I'm sure you've all looked this over. It starts on page 95 of the core documents volume. Um, my question I want to direct primarily to Eric, though, Dave, if you... If you want to chime in, absolutely do so. Um, uh, in putting together this volume, right? I having edited one of these myself, I know that some difficult decisions go into what to include and what uh, and what gets left out. Why does this document make the cut?
2: It is a really good illustration of a lot of the progressive thinking um, that went on. Uh, in this period of time, 1896 to about 1916. Um, and the the first plank um, is, I think, the best illustration or concise illustration of the progressive attitude towards political parties. Um, we see the antagonism. Uh, we see uh, the blame that is uh, foisted on the parties for much that is wrong with the political system, or at least what the progressives perceive as wrong with the political system. And I think it helps us go a long way towards understanding why the progressives wanted, at very least, to replace um, the existing party system, but I think, at at most, uh, to get rid of parties altogether and move us in the direction of something like direct democracy. and uh, you know when you read that that beginning section on the old parties, um, you know you see in here uh, the uh, Progressive Party platform, you know saying the you know, the Republicans can't offer a solution, uh, the Democrats are stuck in the past, and you know it just just can't get themselves adapted um, to uh, contemporary American political life. Um, and so, you know, we need to forge this new instrument of government um, through which uh, to give effect to their will and laws and institutions. So, you know, it, it's, it's a little unclear when you read the platform, um, whether they're talking about the progressive party becoming a permanent part of American politics or more in the vein that I think Jefferson saw the political party as a kind of temporary conduit. Um, to confront the threat of an opposition party. Um, But once that opposition party was vanquished, we would move in the direction of probably, you know, (laughs) standing down um, and and letting the party kind of dissolve um, and get back to a nonpartisan political system. Jefferson, of course, I think found the party too useful uh, to actually get rid of it. Um, But uh, the progressives, I don't think are on the Jeffersonian side of seeing parties as useful, they just see them as as harmful.
1: Dave, you have anything to add to that?
3: I do. I I mean, I think it's um, an excellent choice, a a must-include document. We see with the Progressive Party platform in 1912 uh, a recurring feature of 20th century politics, dissatisfaction with the two-party system. Uh, And so for Those seeking to understand George Wallace's appeal in 1968 or Ross Perot's in 1992, uh, or even the breakaway from the Democratic Party um, by the state's rights party led by Strom Thurmond in 1948, uh, this document is a good starting point.
1: All right, well, why don't we start out with some some background to this? How did we get to this point where we have a, a, a party, a new party declaring itself. How do we get to Chicago, 1912?
3: Well, we have uh, we have the the, the consistent insulting of, of Taft to get us there by by Teddy Roosevelt. So, um, I think if there is the biggest regret of Teddy Roosevelt's uh, uh, life was. Um, his announcement in, in, in 1904 that he wouldn't run again, that he would honor the two-party principle, and uh, I think he he brewed that the moment he left uh, the White House, add to it his growing dissatisfaction with what he saw as as Taft's conservatism, um, and uh, we're building toward a third party. So when uh, La Follette says, well, I'm going to break away from the Republicans and, and uh, pursue a, a more progressive agenda, uh, Roosevelt wants to beat him to it.
2: I think that's a that's a an excellent summary of exactly how you end up there. Um, uh, Taft, Taft is just not perceived as progressive enough. Uh, You know, it's not really that I I think it's fair to to label him, you know, an outright conservative, you know, that he was moving us backwards from the gains that had been made um, in in the progressive direction. Um, I, I would squarely say that Taft was a was a progressive, um, but he wasn't a radical enough progressive. <laughs> um, he, he wasn't pushing the more radical edges of progressivism, uh, the way that Teddy Roosevelt wanted to see him do uh, the way that that, uh, you know, progressives in the country wanted to see him do. Um, and so he was seen as dragging his feet and and too willing to play the old political games. Um, you know he was he was willing to use the patronage to get what he wanted um you know he was willing to use uh uh you know party mechanisms um in order to get legislation through that uh, that he favored and you know for purist progressives this was the antithesis of what politics should be about there there's a purity that should be um in place there and they they rebelled against him. Um and yeah when Teddy Roosevelt announces that he's willing to run he's a charismatic leader. Um he's he's got a lot of influence and he draws a lot of people with him.
1: Dave a minute ago you mentioned uh, Wisconsin's favorite son Robert LaFollette. Uh, what what role, if any, did he play in, in all of this?
3: Well, I think uh, his his biggest role is to inspire this move. Um, I think for La Follette, um, Roosevelt running sidelines him, but he doesn't give up his presidential uh, aspirations. Uh, he will run in, in 1924 and, and not do well uh, at all. So, so clearly he's nursing those presidential uh, ambitions. I think his, his his other big role is to uh, push the Republican Party uh, toward the goals of, of progressivism. Um, when you look at the specific points of the platform, this is, this is a place that La Follette would be quite at home within.
2: Eric, yeah, I'd, anyone- I'd, I'd add to that that La Follette also was the one who put his toe over the line. Yeah, you know, he was he was the guy who said, "All right, that's enough. I, I I can't stay loyal to this party any longer. You know, something else has to take its place," which I think made it much easier for Roosevelt um, to take that turn um, in 1912. Uh, you know, Roosevelt was was very much a part of the Republican Party, and you know there was. Very, very likely going to be a real sense of betrayal um, if he went off in, in a third-party direction. Um, but La Follette, you know, he he's the precursor to this. You know, there's already been a major defection. It makes it a lot easier for for Roosevelt to do the same.
1: What did La Follette, I don't want to go off too far into discussing Lafollette, although I find, find him a fascinating individual. What did Roosevelt and La Follette think of one another?
3: I'll defer to Eric on that one.
1: Yeah, um, I
2: I actually don't know a lot about their relationship. Um, I I, I you know Teddy tended to have pretty strong opinions about people <laughs> um in general, but I have to admit, I'm I'm not really familiar with how well they got along or or what kind of relationship they had.
1: They 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 were both <laughs> very strong personalities. It's hard yes. to imagine. <laughs> it's hard to imagine that they would have uh, coexisted very easily alongside one another. Well we've got a few questions from uh, from our audience. Conrad Graf uh, asks, is progressive is the Progressive Party's wish to remove political parties and move toward direct democracy uh, in that situation wouldn't factions have still developed that would have led to political parties anyway?
3: That question really presents its own answer, yes. And I think we see here the idealism and the optimism of the progressives. Uh, Eric um, used the word purity a little bit ago uh, to describe uh, the progressives and, and the ha- clinging to this idea that, that maybe this would just be uh, a temporary shell, uh, that they could uh, move from having a formal party structure to just having direct, pure democracy um and and that is a highly idealistic uh, expectation. and as as we see with La Follette and uh, Roosevelt, um, factions do develop.
2: yeah, I, you know I, I say in the essay that that uh, you know starts the book that it appears, given. How, how much the framers emphasized the need for a nonpartisan political system and how hard they worked to try to make sure that parties wouldn't be needed um, in the political system and the fact that parties show up almost immediately um, on the scene, that the only real conclusion we can make from that is that parties are inevitable in a Republican form of government. Uh, You just, you can't, you can't exist without them. And it's not just that they're inevitable, but they're necessary. Uh, We actually need them. Um, So yes, you know, the progressives could have conceivably eliminated parties, but I don't think it would have lasted very long. I think parties would have reasserted themselves um, and would have reformed. Uh, and in very short order, we would have ended up with some sort of a party system um, as a result of it. Maybe two-party, maybe single-party, maybe multi-party. Uh, that I, I don't know. Um, but I, I have every confidence that parties would have
1: reformed. You you said that we need political parties. Could you say more about what you mean by that?
2: Yeah. Um, direct democracy is nearly impossible in a large republic. You you need something to organize the electorate. Um, You need a mechanism that attaches the people to those who represent them. And especially in an era, um, you know, in the 18th century, in the 19th century, when we don't have the internet, when we don't have television and all of these other um, avenues where representatives can speak to the people, The parties really help to fill this void. Um, They they are that conduit that we need um, that allows the representatives to know what their constituents want. Um, It allows the constituents to know what their representatives are doing on their behalf. Um, it, It factors into voter mobilization and getting people out to the polls and participating in politics. Um, Something that we struggle with mightily right now uh, in American politics, Uh, just getting people out to vote. Well, you know, in the era of strong parties, the parties did that real well. Um, I mean, we're talking 70, 80 percent voter turnout. Um, So the the idea of democratic legitimacy being a problem, not really an issue when you have strong parties. Uh, It's only when the parties become weak um, that you start having those legitimacy problems.
3: I would add that a a parallel we have uh, with the necessity of uh, parties in a large Republic is the committee structure of Congress. The constitution does not mention committees. Article one empowers Congress to govern its own affairs. We see the emergence of the committee structure and system almost immediately. Uh, And despite minor modifications, it is still adhering to a seniority system, um, which encourages, career politicians and elected officials for which a party system is useful.
1: Yeah, it, it, I think we talked about this last month uh, when Eric, you and, and Abby Vector were talking about, uh, uh, we're talking about Tammany Hall, how in the uh, 1912 really shows a, a, a weak voter turnout, certainly compared to the kind of turnout that you would have seen up through the 1890s, right? What does that that tell us about the role that parties play, if I haven't answered my own question?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I I think that speaks, you know, directly to, you know, the value of parties um, in in terms of political participation. And parties were extraordinary um, in the way that they were able to, you know, marshal thousands if not millions of party workers to go out on election day and make sure that voters were you know taking to the polls I have a party's class right now that I'm teaching and one of my students had said oh yeah but you know women weren't voting then um so you know uh, it's it's not as impressive that the parties were able to get you know these high voter turnouts I told the student, I don't think it would have mattered. Um, if women had been voting, I still think the parties would have managed to get 70, 80% voter turnout. Uh, they were just that effective and, and that good at what they did. Um, and you know, they had the resources, which, of course, came from a lot of corruption. Um, but uh, they had the resources and they had the organizational know-how um, to be able to marshal large numbers of people uh, out to the polls and to keep them engaged on a regular basis. So it wasn't just engaging them on election day, it's engaging them in between elections, keeping them informed, keeping them, you know, uh, uh, connected to the political system.
1: Uh, some uh, we've gotten a kind of a backlog of questions. Let's see how many we could get to. Richard Rego asks, is it Taft's conservatism? That incurred the uh, the ire of uh, of Roosevelt, I suppose, or his respect for uh, uh, for the law. That really caused the rift between the two of them.
3: I think for Roosevelt Taft's problem was that he was so uh, faithful to his idea of the rule of law that he became an inflexible thinker, and what we see Roosevelt emphasizing as president, and then once he leaves. Um, through his concept of new nationalism, um, is that the purpose of government is to serve the welfare of the people. And, you know, that doesn't sound like a radical statement, but if we define government as a structure of laws, uh, and in a republic it should um, uphold the laws and make sure they apply equally, Um, Well, we have uh, competing notions of government then. They are at odds with one another. So we see Roosevelt proposing some very radical ideas in the new nationalism and as a candidate in 1912, popular referenda to overrule the Supreme Court. And if you look at Taft's campaign speeches and as as Eric uh, notes, um, Taft hated to to campaign. I mean, he just, he didn't like this part. I mean, he believed in parties but he didn't want to do the work that was necessary to be a a candidate from a party. Uh, But he keeps saying, we are a nation of laws. This has worked. Um, We don't have to upend the apple cart. And I think that's what really bothered um, Roosevelt and led Roosevelt to see him as a conservative, whereas Taft sees himself as someone following the rule of law. And I suppose Taft would say, if that makes me a conservative, that I want to conserve the rule of law, so be it.
2: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, I think that was Taft's view. Um, I, I think he was in favor of incremental change uh, over time, as opposed to big radical change all at once. Um, I think he believed that you know a lot of the stuff that we see in the Progressive Party platform of 1912, you know, was sort of beyond the scope of what was allowed in constitutional democracy. Uh, at least, without amending the Constitution, which of course the progressives want to make very easy to do, um, and you know this is just completely out of alignment with uh, the the whole ideas of limited government, um, and you know that that needs to be
1: preserved. I think my favorite example of of Taft's fealty to the law is his aggressive pursuit or the aggressive pursuit by his justice department of of antitrust his and roosevelt thought well, oh, wait a minute you know there are good trusts and bad trusts and taft says well sh- essentially show me where it says that the sherman antitrust law it <laughs> says you know, combinations in restraint of trade have to be broken up it doesn't say the ones that we like <laughs> don't you know, are, are, are exempt from that uh eric sellett says uh, asks here when the document says uh they presumably the progressives wanted democratic socialism did they mean the bernie sanders form of democratic socialism what was their idea of democratic socialism
3: well we need to keep the progressives firmly rooted in their time of over a hundred years ago and, you know, if we want to draw parallels to progressives of today or self-identified democratic socialists, we want to look for the common factors in our uh, society and politics today with those of the progressives. So with the, for the progressives, the effects of industrialization were paramount. I mean, you see again and again in in this Platform, but but also in progressive speeches and, and in the rhetoric of Roosevelt and of Wilson too, who we haven't brought in, but but perhaps deserves uh, mention since he's the, a candidate in nineteen twelve and and he's the one who wins. And and they're saying pursuit of happiness is not possible when industrial corporations immiserate so many workers, and and government needs to step up and put in wage laws and and um, set. Uh, minimum requirements for conditions and and provide compensation for those hurt on the job, um, uh, and so on. So if we see parallels with advocacy today for such policies, yes, there's a similarity. But um, you know the progressives are, are are dealing with a world that um, has uh, raised the standard of living, but brought so much. Upheaval because of industrialization and immigration is is transforming the country. I mean, those are just two notable differences
2: with our own times that we should be mindful of. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, when I read through the platform of 1912, you know, I really read the New Deal. Um, I I really read the precursor to the New Deal. I see Social Security in there. I see you know a lot of elements. Uh, that FDR is going to bring about with the uh, the help of a major crisis um, that is going to help legitimize a lot of these things um, that the progressives don't get. Um, you know, I guess the interesting question is, how much would these progressives have embraced the Great Society? Uh, would, would the Great Society's principles um, have been something that would mesh with progressivism? Um, and, you know, I, I think the answer is at least some of them would be. Um, certainly, progressives today uh, still advocate policies um, out of concern for inequities in the marketplace, which is, I, I think, very analogous to what progressives were worried about uh, in 1912. Um, you know, the uh, the social justice and the environmental pieces and things like that I think those are harder to uh to 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 say. I mean, TR certainly conservation, um, uh, you know, a big environmental theme uh going on with him. Uh, you know, was that shared by other progressives, you know, outside of that? Um, you know, a little harder to say. Uh you do notice when you read through the platform of 1912, there's nothing on race. Um, that's uh that's a big <laughs> omission that you see in here. Um, so, you know, the connection between these progressives and, you know, the progressives of, of the 1960s um, who were very concerned, of course, with race and and dealing with the pernicious effects of segregation, uh, that didn't seem to really get on their radar in 1912.
3: Yeah, that, that's a great point. And, you know, the one candidate who is talking about race in 1912 is the the alleged conservative. It's It's Taft. And he's speaking to the African American electorate, um, those able to vote. The, the majority of African Americans live in the South, and voting rights stripped by by 1912 uh, for the most part. But um, in Elkton, Maryland, uh, Taft says, "You know, if the progressives get their way. If you know, if you allow the tampering with the Constitution, um, they're going to go after, or somebody's going to go after the 14th and 15th Amendments, and that's going to affect." African Americans. So you know he's making an appeal to uh, a portion of the electorate that's still loyal to the Republican Party and saying you need to be uh, aware of the consequences here uh, of these changes if the if they get their way.
1: I had never heard of that speech before. I, I want to look. I want to look into that. Uh, yeah, it's it, it it really is interesting. W.E.B. Du Bois famously endorses. Wilson right, right. and <laughs> something that he would he would really regret later on but uh, uh Du Bois didn't have didn't find much to choose from among the uh, among the field of candidates but I wasn't aware that that Taft had made that kind of uh that kind of outreach but it certainly is the case that African Americans stuck with the uh those who were who were able to uh, uh, who were able to vote which was a pretty small number of them but I do know that they stay stuck with the Republican Party. Uh, something else that struck me is as Eric was talking about the difference between the progressives of today, or maybe the progressives of the 1960s and onward, versus the progressives of this period. Is you don't see the kind of emphasis on personal freedom and personal liberation that's often associated with uh, with with modern progressivism. I mean, if you if you read uh, a, a lot of Theodore Roosevelt, you don't see talk of freedom much at all. Uh, it's always talk about duties that 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 we have to uh, to society. Do either of you have any uh, any thoughts on that?
3: Well, when he talks about the new nationalism, Roosevelt says this is important. I mean, we have to have uh, limited hours, and um, you know this is a big part uh, of the document we're discussing. And Roosevelt explains it this way we need people to be able to go home from work and and have free time um, and to participate in their communities. So, you know, he's talking about free time and more freedom, but then as you noted, John, he's bringing it back to a a duty, but saying this is, this allows people to become good citizens. If they're working all the time and and exhausted, they just, they can't engage. And that's not true freedom. That's not Republicanism.
2: Yeah. I, I think there's also a, a certain sense that embedded in progressive philosophy, the early progressives, you know, is this kind of distrust of individualism and, and this distrust of individual rights or the emphasis on individual rights. Um, there's more of this, this placement, I, I think of Crowley in this, um, you know, talking more about devotion to the common good and you know, the, the, the general welfare. Um, and needing to get people out of their, you know, individualistic mindsets. So for them, you know, talk of liberation and those kinds of things is perhaps leading us back um, to that more individualist way of thinking. Uh, And, you know, maybe we're a little less uh, willing to embrace that um, in 1912 or in, in that early progressive era. But later on, um, you know, this becomes more of a, a concern uh, of individuals being able uh, to experience personal liberation and personal freedom. Um, and so it becomes more of an emphasis for progressives later.
1: Uh, I, I, Eric Sallet has asked another question, and I'm kind of jumping the queue a bit because it is it directly refers back to something we were talking about just a moment ago, uh, what was going on for the progressives that they didn't address the topic of race?
3: I think the progressives um, are just so focused on industrial problems and what the role of government is that they're not understanding how determinant race is in what happens in American politics, I mean, they kind of brush up against it when when they accuse the Democratic Party of, of being neglectful of the people. And when they talk about the major differences between states, but you'll notice in the document when they talk about how uh, a worker can have a very different life from one state compared to the next, they're doing so from this uh, position that, you know, industrialization and the negative effects are the, are the true problem. I mean, you could take that same framework and say, uh, why is it that um, African-Americans can vote um, in, in Ohio, but if, if they cross South and get to Kentucky or further South, they can't vote? You know, that's, that's a problem that progressives could have talked about, but I think they were just so focused on these macro problems brought by industrialization that they weren't interested
2: yeah, I, that's the the piece I'd emphasize. I think they just weren't interested. Um, I, I think for them, race was a was either an issue too far, um, in in terms of a, an intractable problem that they didn't think that they could really make much in the way of inroads into, or uh, most cynically, you know, they were probably racist themselves and didn't really care about it all that much.
3: It, it, just to add to that quickly, you know, if, if we're talking about race in 1912, we also need to understand that that the term race encompassed lots of Europeans who were not considered white. And there's a great deal of concern. You know, you've got the Dillingham Commission around this time um, uh, and the proposal for uh, comprehensive restrictive immigration targeting um, nationalities and ethnicities from Europe um, deemed to be inferior to the Germanic, Scandinavian, Anglo-Saxon type. Um, so you know the, the conceptions of race that are prevalent at the time um, are, are different than our, our own today, and 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 one can see that in in, in Roosevelt himself.
1: Yeah, I, I, one thing I would add, uh, even though Roosevelt was. Was the the first as president was the was the first president to uh, to have a, a a black man at the White House, uh, and that was uh, that was Booker. Was Booker T. Washington or Oscar De Priest? I think it was Booker it, T. Washington. It was
3: Booker T. Washington. Yeah,
1: uh, for which he got lots of uh, lots of criticism from whites. I, it, Roosevelt himself was a believer in in racial theory. So he he was certainly not a believer in the equality of the races. I had also read that he was convinced that there were Southern progressives who could be won over to his cause. But the one way that he could really ruin that is by supporting uh, supporting rights for African Americans, because white progressives in the South would have all you know been convinced in the uh, the 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 desirability of segregation. Um, Joseph Giuliano asks Was there ever any discussion about amending the Constitution in ways that would encourage a a multi party system? That's a good question.
3: Well, in their platform, the progressives say we've got to make it easier to amend the Constitution. Um, And although they don't give it that specific purpose, certainly that's an intention, that's a possibility. and, and Eric, maybe you can say more about what they specifically thought should be done in the Constitution to make amendments easier, because it's not spelled out in, in, in the document.
2: Uh, and maybe you know, they
3: wanted to keep it vague.
2: Yeah, I, I think the intention was to sort of keep it vague um, and probably change some of the uh, the uh, you know three quarters requirements for the states, knock that down to two thirds or majority or something like that. Um, perhaps bring down the two-thirds requirements in Congress to simple majority, uh, something like that. But I'm unaware of any amendment that they were talking about uh, proposing to move us toward a multi-party system. I mean, given that parties are so problematic, it's it's kind of unclear how more of them is going to <laughs> make things better. Right. Um, so two two are kind of bad enough. Three or more, and you know we have a yeah, huge mess on our hands. So no, I, I don't think they ever entertained uh, anything like an idea that a multi-party system would be better.
1: Um, Joe Rooney asks, how influential was the Progressive Party in moving the country toward adopting women's suffrage and direct election of U.S. senators? Or were the desire for these amendments already incubating in the party system?
3: If I remember correctly, the, the first proposal for a constitutional amendment for the direct election of senators came out of the House in the mid 1880s um, and just couldn't get through the Senate um, for, for obvious uh, reasons. So that idea had been percolating for some time. The populists call for the direct election of senators in, in 1892, so 10 years earlier, that's a uh, part of a third party's uh, official program.
2: Yeah, so you know, David's right. There's there's precursors to this. Um, you know, this is this has already been proposed. This has already been talked about, and uh, certainly women's suffrage has become a a major social movement. Um, but uh, I mean, I would say the progressives are are important uh, in kind of folk. You know, providing focus on these issues and really mobilizing voters and. Uh, mobilizing the electorate uh, in support of, of both measures, um, and, and ultimately being able to get them passed as constitutional amendments.
1: I, I was a little surprised to see the reference in, in the platform to the direct election of senators because I believe that by 1912 it was already a done deal as far as Washington was concerned. It was just out in, among the states; it hadn't been ratified by by enough states. So yeah, it seems strange to me that part of their national platform is pushing for something that had already been established. Do you know anything about, uh, any insight on that?
3: I mean, it goes into effect, and it's ratified in 1913. So yeah, Yeah. it would have to be out by then, uh, the same year as the income tax. Those those, those are the 16th and 17th uh, amendments.
1: Yeah, and what I know about the, the election of 1912, that never comes up as an issue. I mean Taft is all for it. He he had, he had you know, but it wasn't even it wasn't even before anyone in uh, in Washington. Anyway, uh, Kimberly Kowalski asks, would it be fair to say that the progressives believed that the country belonged to the people, and uh, and and they were the ones who were most interested in the public welfare. What did the progressives think of states' rights?
3: I think yes, absolutely. Um, they see the government as representing the welfare of the people. I mean, this is Roosevelt's uh, consistent uh, message, um, and they are wary of. Um, you know, they didn't. Don't, don't mention the Tenth Amendment, but but you know, you get a, a sense the Progressives are are suspicious of of that amendment because of the way it empowers. States. So when they talk about the need to have uniform uh, laws regulating uh, workplace conditions and, and, and wages that that's, you know, running roughshod over over states rights and, and they're looking to the federal government to carry this out so um, states rights um, are an obstacle to the progressives for most of their goals.
2: Yeah, the progressives seize control of the Commerce Clause. They seize control of the taxing power uh, and use those as ways of overriding federalism in the Constitution. And in their platform, um, in the uh, plank on nation and state, um, I think they very clearly uh, take a stand uh, against the states uh, in favor of the national government. So he says, you know, up to the limit of the Constitution and later by amendment of the Constitution if found necessary, we advocate bringing under effective national jurisdiction those problems which have expanded beyond the reach of the individual states. Um, so national jurisdiction over national problems and stop you know having the states try to regulate child labor because they can't do it. Um, we need to turn this over to the national government. But that final uh, statement, the extreme insistence on states' rights by the Democratic Party and the Baltimore platform, demonstrates anew its inability to understand the world into which it has survived or to administer the affairs of a union of states which have in all essential respects become one people. So we're we're not really a nation of states anymore. (laughs) We've we've really become a, a single nation that needs a single government to administer public affairs and to pursue the common good.
1: I I'm not remembering now did well they make reference to the Baltimore platform so I guess that means that the 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 Democratic convention had already occurred or had the platform been drafted before that and there's a reason why I'm I'm asking this I had read that Roosevelt Roosevelt thought his only real shot at being elected was if the Democrats elected a a a, a conservative rather than someone like Wilson and as soon as Wilson was 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 the nominee he kind of not that he had any particular respect for Wilson but because but Wilson was significantly progressive that it destroyed Roosevelt's idea that he was going to draw all the progressives of both major parties into this into this alliance do, do I of you know anything about that
3: well the date on this document is is November 5th 1912 so um this must be a very late revision uh, of the uh, the platform uh, released to have impact upon upon the vote. So um, I, I don't know the earlier incarnations, but I would suspect that um that reference to Baltimore came came later after the Democrats convention,
1: Yeah, I'm almost positive that the that the progressive convention was came before the Democratic convention. Yeah. Eric, yeah. you have anything on this?
2: I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure um, what, what the dates are on them, um, actually, but um, I, I, the, the tickle I have in the back of my brain uh, seems to remind me that the, uh, the Progressive Convention did come first. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Thanks. Uh, Gloria I asks a question that I, I think the progressives themselves might have asked. Do not parties encourage an elite power group at the top and don't they think of the power of the party rather than the good of the people at large?
2: Well, parties can do that. Um I, I don't know that they have to do that. Uh, but some of this is a consequence of parties becoming so big in the nineteenth century. I mean, these become organizations with millions and millions of members. and, you just can't run an organization like that democratically. Uh, it just doesn't work. Um, you can't have them all casting a vote for a nominee uh, and and totaling up the votes and and deciding you know which which candidate is going to get the nomination at that point or you know having millions of members participating in writing a party platform. I, it just it it can't happen. And so you know. It, power has to become more centralized and, and the organizational structure has to become more hierarchical. Um, and that's exactly what happened with the parties. The power starts to you know move upward into the hands of the party bosses. Uh, they're making more and more decisions on behalf of everybody. Um, and that trickles down to uh, everybody else in the party. Um, and they do become very corrupted um, in, in the process. Uh, they ingrandize themselves, uh, they get in bed with the corporate trusts. Um, it, it really does become a mess of, of these elites not really catering to, uh, the needs of the people. So, I mean, that part of the critique was right. The question is whether parties have to operate this way or whether it had to turn out like this. And I think some of that comes down to statesmanship. Um, you know the type of leaders that you put in place and give power to and I, I think in in many cases the parties just made bad decisions uh, about who was placed in charge and who had power um, instead of you know people who might have been more concerned about the common good and more concerned like in the populist era um, of the pot the, the plight uh, of the people I think
3: the progressives see political parties at this time as little more than corporations, and the 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 platform speaks of parties as if they can be re- regulated in the same ways corporations can be regulated. Um, you know, they they have some pretty um, big proposals for placing limits uh, on the parties, um, and and that's. Shows an interesting outlook on them, I mean they're fitting everything into this this view of, of, of America as uh, being ground up by industrialization I mean political parties are. Uh, and the way people express themselves through them, I mean that that gets to the vote and it gets to 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 free speech issues, um, but the progressives want to limit the power of parties and the power of interest groups to. Influence the parties, So, I mean, you know, so there's some language in this document that sounds very modern, certainly very familiar. It's it, calling for the registration of lobbyists, um, which, if we look at it from another way, is is placing a burden on someone's commercial activity, right? I mean, if this is what they do for a living, this is their economic en- endeavor. Why is a particular restriction placed on on them? Uh, but for the progressives, this is necessary for the welfare of the people.
2: Right. Yeah, they, they talk about, you know, campaign finance reform as well, um, you know, and which is an issue we're still grappling with in contemporary politics. Although I, I would point out for all of these, you know, party reforms that they're specifically arguing for, um, the most effective ones were the Australian ballot, civil service reform, um, and uh, primaries. Uh, You know, these these were the things that did more damage to the the political parties than anything else.
1: I want to ask, uh, since we're we're coming toward the end of our time. Why didn't the progressives have more success in 1912 than they did? And uh, in in fact, they the, the party didn't last very long. And why do they still matter? Or, or what what difference did they make, given how seemingly unsuccessful they were?
3: Well, I would say they build on the foundation provided by the the populists and 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 make possible uh, some major reforms in terms of how the parties operate in the primaries. Uh, as as Eric noted, uh, they provide a foundation for social insurance. As Eric said at the at the top of the hour. Um, there's so much that sounds like the New Deal here. So they matter just for that reason, because the New Deal harkens back so much um, to this platform and to the goals of the progressive. So um, even if they don't make it as a political party, um, they greatly influence the two durable long lasting parties.
2: Yeah, I I, I agree with that. The progressives introduce an entirely new way of thinking about American politics. Um, you know, they give us the living Constitution. Um, uh, you know, something that is is embraced by every student that I have in intro to American government. Um, you know, that the Constitution needs to be adapted and changed to keep up with the times. Um, and I mean, this is a this is a very progressive idea. I mean, this is something you find in in you know lots of progressive writings. Um, and certainly, the progressive policies uh, that are advocated, you know, they don't all come to fruition um, in, you know, the 1910s and the 1920s, but we do see an awful lot of them show up in the New Deal, uh, or after. Um, so, you know, they, they do end up making a, a pretty significant mark um, on American politics. Um, you know, to the other part of your question, uh, why don't they have more success? Well, in a way, I I think part of the answer to that question, I think there's a lot of answers to that question, but part of the answer to that question is that they refuse to embrace themselves being a political party. You know, they, they don't get out there and raise money. They don't get out there and mobilize. They don't get out there and, you know, try to rally the troops and, you know, do all of the things that parties need to do to win elections. Um, to, to a certain extent, I have always perceived the progressives as being more of a social movement than a political party. Um, that becoming a party is, in a way, kind of selling out. And by the way, I would say there's kind of an analogy to be made with the Tea Party in that same way. Um, you know, that many, many members of the Tea Party were very, very reluctant um, to move in the direction of becoming a formal political party. Uh, because they thought they would sell out on the purity of their principles um, if if they embraced party politics, uh, so I, I think that's one of the things that ends up hurting them in
1: 1912. Okay, uh, let's see. I want to. We have very little time left. Uh, Andrew Nappy asks an interesting question. What part of the Progressive Platform in 1912? Would most Americans have considered the most radical, and why?
3: The proposal for overriding courts, that's an idea that just didn't get a lot of traction. And you know, and, and Eric can probably speak to this better than I can, but I wonder if it's not so much that 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 people like Taft. Um, are saying, you know, we've always had the court system this way, uh, this is what's important, but, but court decisions, you know, weren't followed as they are today. And so I think just, you know, most Americans don't have direct encounter with the effects of Supreme Court decisions or state court decisions. So um, I think they would have found it uh, to be a, a radical one to change something they don't really understand well.
2: I'd agree with that. I I think that would probably be the the one that Americans would find uh, uh, most controversial. I'd maybe toss out as well, uh, making the Constitution easier to amend, Um, although there are Americans today who do want to see the Constitution easier to amend. Uh, But I think a lot of Americans would would find this somewhat troubling, um, that uh, the fundamental law of the land could be altered uh, by a simple majority in Congress um, or whatever the progressive plan was for making that happen, uh, that the document needs a little more permanence uh, and needs a, a, a little firmer foundation than that.
3: You know, when we have a, um, an example from the New Deal of um, a radical progressive idea backfiring, uh, and that's Roosevelt's Franklin Roosevelt's court packing idea. You know, where he comes up with this very complex formula for expanding the Supreme Court, and it's 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 clearly uh, engineered to drive out older conservative justices who have been ruling against uh, the New Deal, and and that's just a step too far for for Roosevelt. Um, he's just won re-election to a third term, uh, but that's no mandate to. Um, restructure the Supreme Court. And, and the Supreme Courts, the number of justices isn't set in the Constitution, but, you know, there's, there's always been or supposed to be nine justices since very early on. And, and I think Roosevelt's own supporters thought, no, we're, that we should not tamper with an institution that is working just because you're not happy with the results in, in, in a given moment.
1: This maybe end up being our last question, but there are actually two questions that have been asked that I think naturally go together. One of them is Were the progressives eventually absorbed into the Democratic Party? The other is Isn't Wilson a progressive? My students think he is.
3: Yes, and yes. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, Wilson's geez. certainly a progressive.
2: Yes, I, I agree. I think Wilson's a progressive. I've, I've never really understood the argument that he's some sort of conservative. <laughs> That's just never made any sense to me. Um, but uh, I would say to the first part of the question, I think the progressives are initially absorbed into both political parties. I, I, I think it's really the case, you know, the Republicans had already become progressive by 1912, and the Democrats become progressive under Wilson. Um, and then, you know, as we start moving into the 1920s and the 1930s, these progressive ideas that are not initially picked up, um, you know, then, as we go into the, you know, Harding and, you know, normalcy and all these other kinds of things, um, it's the Democrats who really, you know, run with the uh, the progressive agenda uh, during the New Deal. So I think, yes, they be- eventually become the progressive party.
3: Right. You know, and, and Warren G. Harding is so often presented as um, the Republican president who takes the country back to normalcy. And certainly when you look at his campaign rhetoric in 1920, he, he, he is anti-reform. He, he is hammering home the message that Americans are tired of reform. And yet during his first year in office, he signs the Shepherd towner Act, uh, which provides federal funds for visiting nurses, good mother programs, uh, infant care. Uh, all to lower the uh, rate of infant mortality uh, in the country. This is straight-up progressivism, and, and Harding signs it.
1: Yeah, I always, I always thought there was a, at least an article, perhaps a book, on the extent to which progressivism persisted in the 1920s. And I'm not talking about Robert LaFollette's 1924 campaign. Right. It, it The progressive ethos suffused everything. Even at a time when somebody like Calvin Coolidge, whose rhetoric is is directly anti-progressive, it's uh, progressivism is just re- kind of in many ways regarded as common sense. Uh, we have I, reached the end of our time. Uh, do either of you care to make a final statement about this document? Something that uh, that those uh, those in attendance might want to remember. Not that everything you said isn't worth remembering, but.
3: I, I would say use this document, uh, alongside of, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's new nationalism, uh, 1910, which is, which is also in the collection. They make a good, good pairing.
2: Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I included this to show the transition point, uh, from America with strong parties to America with weak parties. Uh, and I think it's a really good way of, of, understanding where a lot of the modern and contemporary mindset um, or dislike uh, of political parties comes from. Uh, And maybe a reason why we want to do something about that, because I happen to have a a very positive view of parties.
1: Excellent. Well, I want to thank both of our panelists, Eric and David. I also want to thank our participants for their questions. As a reminder, you'll be receiving an email within the next week. That email will include a link for further readings. It will also contain a link to the archived webinar. We really hope that that you'll share that with your colleagues and get it out there on social media. Uh, If you've enjoyed tonight's webinar, please consider taking an online graduate course or an in-person graduate course in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. As I said at the outset, Uh, Both of these gentlemen teach in that program, as do I. You can find more information about our course offerings, as well as all sorts of other resources for teachers at teachingamericanhistory.org. Our next edition of Documents in Detail will take place on Wednesday, November 16th. At that time, we'll be talking about the Pacificus-Helvidius debate of 1793-1794. That comes from our core documents volume on American foreign policy to 1899. And joining us then will be that volume's editor, Steve Knott of the United States Naval War College, and William Addo of the University of Dallas. So thanks again to all of you for being with us tonight. We'll look forward to seeing you again next month. Thank you all. Good night.
0: Thanks again for listening to Teaching American History's webinar on the Progressive Party Platform of 1912. For more information on our webinars, in-person educator professional development programs, free document library, and graduate program, please visit us at th.org.